Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Clark and Miller. Well, the Clark and Miller English Podcast. Uh, welcome back, and if you're new, welcome. Uh, it's good to have you all here again today. Uh, it's a really exciting episode because, well, it's exciting for me because I seriously, seriously enjoyed recording it. Um, I, today, uh, I interview um, Christian from Kangaroo English. Now, you might have seen Christian on social media a bit recently, especially if you're involved in uh, language teaching uh, groups or pages or discussions or anything like that. Uh, because Christian recently um, put out a video uh, that has been shared a lot by the teachers community and even better it's generated a lot of discussion um, he shared a video where he's basically calling out uh, Lucy from uh, English with Lucy a very popular YouTube channel and um, generated a lot of conversations about native speakerism in, uh, in, in our industry and it's a serious conversation we should be having and it's great that Christian's uh, done this video. I'm, I'm really happy he did that shortly after I interviewed him. Um, it was great to chat to him and it was even better to, to see this wonderful conversation open up. So uh, yeah, so I'm really happy to be <laughs> presenting this interview with Christian. We don't talk about those topics, we don't talk about native speakerism or anything like that. Um, uh, in this conversation, we talk about uh, methods. We're looking at a m history of language teaching methods and methodology and, and approaches and all that stuff. Um, we had a great conversation. It was funny, enlightening, thought-provoking, and uh, hopefully you can kind of walk away from this one with lots of practical skills. Um, we talked about different approaches to studying, why the grammar translation method might not have existed, how methods are more a uh, sort of reflection of their time, um, some obscure methods from the late 19th and early 20th century, superstitious pigeons, research back stuff versus magic bullet methods, um, basically truth versus superstition, uh, the problem with testing, why we should burn the exams, uh, the pros and cons of communicative language teaching, is dogma a problem without a solution, how maybe methodology isn't as helpful as practical solutions, uh, the value of routine in the classroom, and what we can learn from the ancient Greeks. We covered all of that stuff in quite a short amount of time. Needless to say, the conversation was very animated and, uh, yeah, it, I liked it a lot and I hope you do too. So, yeah, without further ado, let's just get started. Um, here's a conversation with Christian. Yeah, let's, let's go for a nice classic introduction. Okay. So, I'm going to tell you about you <laughs> for okay, a second, cool. okay. um, but really briefly, um, sure. you've, you've, you've been doing the, a podcast and the YouTube channel, mm -hmm. um, plus like the social media stuff like the Insta, yeah. Instagram and Twitter to a yep. lesser extent, um, yep. according to my stalking. Yes. And <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so what I really liked, I guess, like of most of this in the sense of using it to introduce you was uh, this stop studying, start communicating slogan yeah. you have up on the channel. Like, yeah. do you want to tell me a little bit about the idea behind 
It's a very simple notion, but would you like to expand on it? Yeah. Um, so basically, in, in, in my experience, um, a lot of students have an excellent technical command of the language. Um, and, and again, you know, this is in my, this is in my experience um, teaching where I teach in Spain and also from the students that, you know, send me messages and emails. Um, my, my experience is that they have a great technical command of the language and, and what they lack is real practical skills that allow them to actually communicate. Um, and, I mean, it's, it, it, it might be, on the surface, it might seem like I'm telling people uh, to not ever um, look at grammar or not ever look at vocabulary. Basically, I'm, people think I'm telling them to not ever do anything explicitly, right? But, but in fact, um, when, I'm, when I say don't study, what, what I mean is that um, spending hours and hours inside a book is actually not going to improve your ability to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, from, from, from where we sit now in 2020, um, having conversations is, is the most important skill. Uh, because even, you know, and, and we're gonna, I'm sure we're going to talk about this later, yeah. but, but even, even things that you probably wouldn't consider to be conversations, like, for example, uh, Facebook Messenger, uh, if you're in a business talking on Slack, emails, really, they're just a type of asynchronous conversation. And all the skills that make, that make a good conversation, you know, face-to-face, you need those same skills, you know, in today's world. So yeah. I'm basically all about, um, I'm all about focusing on, on, on the practical side of things, basically. That's great. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And more or less everyone who's learning English has had enough emphasis on the non-communicative side just from school I mean it just seems to and it's still that's still a big issue and we could probably bring this up later um, because I'm sure it will come up in the next hour Um, is there I mean so you 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 can grow English did I get that right yeah. 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 Well, I mean, um, it, it's a, it's a Spanish word because uh, I because I live in Spain. Um, uh. The, I mean, everybody everybody here calls me kangaroo, uh, like cool. all the people in the town. Um, <laughs> uh, and and the reason I chose it as a name is because it has a double meaning in Spanish. The the first meaning is obviously the animal, but the second meaning is a person who cares for other people, and. Because it's a metaphor, you know, the, the kangaroo puts the baby inside the pouch and they carry it around. So, yeah. Do you know what I thought it was? I think yeah. I mentioned that on the on our um, our blog post. I thought it was phonetically designed to make you sound like an Aussie when you say it. <laughs> kangaroo. Yeah, I mean, it could be, but that that would be total accident. I can't take credit for that. Okay, well, it's a, it's a happy coincidence. Yeah, exactly. Um, is there anything, yeah, do you want to sort of basically plug any pluggables <laughs> before we start um, uh, no um no i mean i don't um have anything to sell yeah no great okay but i recommend the youtube channel kangaroo english yeah <laughs> yeah i'm gonna just do that okay sure. um let me describe really quickly like what's behind this podcast uh so we have like blue episodes and red episodes of the mm-hmm. podcast mm-hmm. the blue ones are, are directly for students um the ta- like the audience is for students although some teachers may be interested 
Um, they're more like lessons in a way. Uh, but the red ones I always wanted to do because I wanted this for um, curious students, uh, high-level English learners, of mm-hmm. anyone who's sort of um, interested in getting a bit more under the skin of either the language or teaching in general. Uh-huh. I don't think we should have a, necessarily a big separation between teachers and students. There's an area where there's a lot of sort of overlap. And yeah, I agree. I mean, if, if you're a student and you understand how teachers should be teaching, then you can make good decisions about the teacher that you choose. So I yeah, think it's yeah, the same absolutely. thing. Yeah. And I think what informs teachers can also inform learners sometimes. Absolutely. Well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, without further ado, I've got a whole lot of stuff. We'll see how the pacing goes. This is what I'm most concerned about because I got a bit carried away and we've got a lot of stuff. It depends how much comments you make. We'll skip some of the smaller stuff um, if not. But first of all, method, methodology, approach, procedure, all of that stuff. Like, um, how how would you sort of define all this stuff? Do you think it's important to distinguish between these terms? What, what are your ideas on that? Um, I mean, I think it's just, um, yeah, uh, no, I don't think it's important. Um, I mm-hmm. don't think that there's any important distinction between a method or an approach or a system, really. Um, uh, it's just a game of semantics and marketing, mm-hmm. mostly marketing. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> the methods, in my experience, tend to be the marketed ones most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I see schools that are that are kind of selling methods and they they maybe operate under the umbrella like you know Mm. we are you know christians english school and we use the direct method or whatever it is Mm -hmm. mostly when i see that i just immediately feel sorry for the teachers because (laughs) anybody who signs up as a teacher in a place like that is basically um almost like a dancing monkey and i don't Mm. mean that to in an offensive way like you know um, you know, I don't want to, to, to devalue the work they do because, you know, it's, it's hard work. I mean, a lot of those methods, I couldn't, I wouldn't last a day because the energy required, the, 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 the concentration required is, is intense. Mm. Um, but to be trapped like that for both the teacher and the students as well, to be trapped inside these, these, these weird arbitrary limitations, I just... I, I feel terribly sorry for anybody trapped in, inside those four walls. That's a good angle on, on method. I like it. Um, yeah. So I think it's, um, it's going to be easy to guess where I'm going to start with this because most narratives of um, English teaching or language teaching methodologies, methods, mm. whatever, tend to start from the same place. Mm. And as the first method that, that starts the narrative, and I'm going to let you guess this, uh, grammar translation? It's the grammar translation method. Yeah, yeah. So let's start there. Um, we can start messing around with the, the narrative as we go along, but I'm sticking mm. to a conservative um, structure. Yeah. Yeah. So grammar translation method. I've just made some random notes, and I, I like the way this doesn't make much sense. I've got this whole Latin thing. Yeah. Um, learning a language as a subject, not a communicative tool. And some questions. Why do you think it went out of favor? Is there something in it and uh, that it's deductive? So, yeah, there's a few things there. Do you want to play around with any of those ideas? Well, I mean, I've seen some, some recent work that argues that maybe the grammar translation method wasn't really a thing. 
You know, in terms Ooh. of when we retrospectively look back, it's easy to put it all under one umbrella. But perhaps it wasn't it wasn't a clear cut kind of methodology in 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 terms of you know it was interpreted in so many different ways, and maybe it was just a result of 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 the culture rather than it being something that that teachers said okay we're going to learn using the grammar translation method it was something that just happened and 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 for me like when when i look at the history of methods what what you see is you see reflected the the needs of the society at that time so you know grammar translated grammar translation reflected the needs of a particular group of people who who were you know obsessed about translating texts from you know greek to latin or from french to greek or mm-hmm. and so the method evolved from that necessity right so yeah, yeah so this method if we want to still call it that um like it it sounds like it, you're saying it's actually appropriate to the quote-unquote learner's uh, needs and is like you're going a step further and saying it grew out of the needs rather than was kind of implemented or like kind of thrust upon them hmm. yeah i mean i think so because you know if if you if you if you think about language learning um in terms of the way that we consider language learning today it it the idea of the idea of language learning being an actual thing that you'd kind of do is is really recent i'm talking like mm-hmm. 200 years because the 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 idea of having a method arose along with the idea of compulsory education really i mean before compulsory education people didn't go to regular classes people didn't know how to read and write they mm-hmm. weren't interested in um, you know, in being scholarly in, in the same way that we understand it today. So, you know, the needs of the people were completely different and people didn't see language learning as as something with a clear objective, with a real use, apart from whatever they did in their day-to-day lives. You know, if they were traders and they needed to sell goods, well, they better learn the language so they could do that. Um, you know, if they were... Um, kings or or emperors and they needed to know the language so they could rule over all of the different people in their empire you know they that they they had practical needs um and so i think you know if you went back let's say a thousand years and you you looked at how people learned languages well they just they just didn't it wasn't a thing they didn't study them but they did learn them perhaps yeah exactly they yeah there was no there was no um you know like language learning as as anything else except an outward expression of necessity so like just one of those things you would do in your job like yeah yeah like knowing how to count for the money and (laughs) and stuff yeah it's like it's like it's like now now, you know in, in modern society because a lot of people are sedentary uh, and because of the way that our culture is in, in, you know, in 2020, people get up in the morning and they put their running shoes on, they go for a run, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the idea, if you go back a thousand <laughs> years, the idea of someone <laughs> deliberately going for a run for no reason would, would be bizarre, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. 
That even like you, you see that in Back to the Future Three. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Do you remember oh, that remember. scene? Uh, the doc's the doc's getting drunk because he's yeah. he's heartbroken and um and he just starts blabbing about what the future's going to be like to everyone and they're like, well, if everyone's going to have one of these vehicles, isn't anyone going to walk or run anymore? It's like, yes, but for recreation, for fun, <laughs> run for fun. <laughs> it's exactly. Like, so, yeah, same kind of thing, I guess. Same yeah, kind of thing. Le- yeah, learning a language for the sake of learning a language must be an odd concept to someone from two hundred years ago. Yeah. So yeah. that may, that's something that makes me wonder. Like, okay, I want to type from behind and from front, like. How did grammar translation come about as a, as a supposed method for teaching English or languages, rather? And is there anything we can take from that um, and bring it to, to, to the classroom or to our own learning experiences? I mean, if, if you kind of do some reading about you know, like the grammar translation method, it's kind of very vague. And, mm. and in fact, you know... Because I've recently been been working on a on 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 a, on a on a video about about the history of methods, and 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 really a lot of them they're kind of they're very vague, you know. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to to really some of them. It's difficult to say well what exactly would a teacher do in that type of classroom, you know, and what exactly would a student be expected to to learn. So, I mean, grammar translation, from what I understand of it. Looking at it in retrospect, I yeah. think it has very little to offer a, a modern learner. Very little, Be- because of its the vagueness of the way it's defined, in part at least, um, and, and also just because um, because of its its learning objective, which is yeah. uh, to be able to translate text to text, um, and that's just not something that we have a need for. In yeah, you know, I mean, they, they don't they don't ever focus on oral skills. They don't focus on pronunciation. They don't focus on um, what you might say is fluency. You know, it's they weren't they just weren't important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and spoken skills were very much under underplayed. Yeah. I'm just thinking a little bit about what you were saying, and the, the lack of like uh, sort of definition on on lots of methods, um, mm. including, I guess, grammar translation. Do you think that method historians, for lack of a better term, <laughs> have um, perhaps decided that this is what was happening and this was everything in order to contrast it with what happened next or to make the narrative sort of flow more easily. Yeah, I mean, um, history is written by the victors, right? So um, Mm. I I wonder if there's a sense of, well, for a start, um, if you look at a lot of the literature, it's very heavily focused in the European tradition. Like there's very little, I could find very little information about what language learning looked like in the Far East, for example. Of course. Um, you know, so, mm. you know, I think there's there's definitely big holes in our knowledge. And I suspect, as you say, a lot of kind of finessing the narrative to, to make it kind of neat and tidy, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, let's see how that works as we <laughs> move on then. Um yeah, and I guess it's very Western-centric. And, like, mm. being a classic Westerner, I did not make notice that. But, like, I'm just looking through this. Yep, yeah, it's all pretty Western. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so from the same era, this era I've decided to, like, the early 20th century methods. Um, this, the pendulum moves back and forth. Uh, following grammar translation, you got the direct method, yes. which moved towards a sort of uh, supposedly more communicative uh, direction. 
then it sort of swung back to a grammar, sort of focusing the structural approach and then situational language teaching and the oral, well, called the oral method kind of came in. I've got tons of notes on these, but considering, unless you think there's something very special in all of these, um, I'm thinking about getting over these a little quickly. Um, But do you, yeah, do you have any comments on these sort of early 20th century methods? The ones that sort of predated um, the first big one, I guess, which would have been audiolingualism, the first domineering one. Yeah, I mean, um, there were a few that that caught my attention as being really interesting. So there was one... um, which was written during this um, the, the the classical period, so be, like late eighteen hundreds, mm. um, and it was called, it was written by a guy called Fenwick de Porquet, uh, and and he wrote this 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 book, and and the idea of of his book was that you could instantly translate from English to French or from French to English. So this guy was French, right? Mm-hmm. And he wrote this book, and I, I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you a a little, a couple of sentences from the book, okay? My book and yours, my books and yours, my mother and yours, my sisters and yours, my grammar and his, my pens and his, my house and yours, my pencil and hers. And it goes on and on like that for like 300 pages. That's the whole book. (laughs) That's the whole book. And the idea was that, (laughs) that these structures would become so familiar to you that essentially your brain would learn to they would kind of learn these like frames these structural frames and then whenever you wanted you could just substitute you could put in the right word and you were good to go and you'd be fluent Um, i see already it's reminding me of two things uh one of which i didn't actually include in the list but we can talk about it um this reminds me a little bit about the callan method Uh um like oh god i i did callan method for a little bit and I remember one of the most, you know, the, the, the procedure, you have this book and the student has this book and you read the student a question and they have to repeat the question and, and answer it word by word. It reminds me of that a little yes. bit. And, and is, is that the one where the teacher kind of stands at like a pulpit almost, like a, like a lectern at the front of the class? I think oh. some like harder versions of that might. That sounds like <laughs> extreme calloning. <laughs> yeah, extreme calloning. Calloning. Calloning 2.0. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like it because it is very like it's not teacher centric, it's teacher dominant. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, I, yeah. I mean, can you, can you imagine um, doing that as a job? Well, I did it for a while as a How freelancer. Was it? Because I was experimenting a lot for a while as a freelancer. Well, from my point of view, it was very easy. Because really? ah. all I had to do was shout at the student and tell ah. them when they were wrong. <laughs> so wow. they, they didn't learn a thing. <laughs> but, but did the repetition not kind of drive you crazy after like maybe four or five classes in a row? Or It made the time go really quickly. Wow. Which I think was my priority at the time. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I wouldn't recommend it. I think if I'd been doing it for like a year, I would have gone crazy for sure. But yeah. I did this for a few months. And, and, and you think that the students got very little out of that, that kind of method? I saw less progress than I feel I would have with the same students and something more communicative, for sure. Like a bottle, like, of, a bottle of red wine. And... Yeah, uh, and a chat. <laughs> that, would have, yeah. that would have done better. Yeah. 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 
Um, and the other thing it reminded me of, there's a, a Scott Thornbury uh, presentation at a conference on YouTube somewhere, or at least there was. And he's talking about this grammar book he finds. And uh, it's just got the most absurd like sentence examples. Like, my finger is on your nose. <laughs> my foot is on your knee. <laughs> and things like that. Um, well, well, that was actually another, um, that was another method from, from this same um, period, which was uh-huh. written by a guy called Prendergast. And okay, I've heard he, that name. Yeah. yeah, and he called it, um, I've got the name of it here, uh, Prendergast, it was called The Mastery System by Prendergast, right? And, and so he did maybe a bit more like, the, like what was in uh, Scott's presentation. Mm. So here's, here's a typical sentence, right? So why did you not ask him to come with two or three of his friends to see my brother's gardens? When, <laughs> when the man who brought the parcel for me yesterday evening calls again, give it back to him and tell him that that is not what I ordered at the shop. And so, so in the book, he had these sentences, and, and the idea was that these sentences represented all of the possible grammatical structures in English. And again, right. you would kind of learn subconsciously the structure, and then when you're ready, you could slot in um, whatever you wanted. And at the back of this book, he had something mm-hmm. called the Labyrinth, which was basically an enormous diagram of all of the possible grammatical structures that you could put words in. It was, I mean, I have to hand it to the guy. It was I hard work creating Yeah, I, I tried making one of those once. It's so hard. Um, <laughs> yeah, cool. I, I can check it out. So that's uh, Prendergaff, the Labyrinth. Prendergast's mastery system. Mastery system. So these systems, they do sound uh, awfully like they would fit into a definition of uh, what was called the structural approach. Mm. Yeah, Um, I mean, I I think now we're starting to move towards some, some, maybe not some actual, um, you know, maybe not anything really um, kind of tactile, but... um, you know, we're starting to move towards some concepts that have some value, right? Like yeah. the idea of understanding that there are kind of structures. Like that's a good, that's that's a good thing to understand. Well, yes, and this that's what I was thinking. I was drawing parallels in my notes. Like uh, you got the structural approach from like the forties to sixties, which sounds awfully like the mastery system. I got to check that out. See how much it correlates, but. Um, um, and also, like, there are echoes of this in, in the lexical approach, I think. Mm. But the big difference, of course, being that the lexical approach um, focuses on meaning, whilst this, these early, like, structural approach um, procedures just focused on, you know, syntax and not much else. Yeah, exactly. Um, and obviously, the, the memory load was pretty massive. And... Mm. Again, like obviously, there's no evidence that um, there's no evidence that repeating structures in this way will actually in any way <laughs> help you to produce the correct structure when you need to. Um, but but I think I think the main thing is the enormous burden on the teacher and the student to just to just be confined in that way. I mean, it's just not a long term. It's just not tenable in the long term. Well, you know. well, we know that now, don't we? <laughs> we do. <laughs> we do. Yeah. Yes. But, um, yeah, so 
Moving on, have you have you got anything else from that period? Because so far it's been gold. <laughs> uh, no, no, nothing else. I think I think now it, we would be moving more towards, um, well, the reform period. Oh, I um, didn't. I haven't heard yeah. that term. I've got a subcategory that I wrote: the one everyone hated, and I've only put one method in there. <laughs> um, I don't know what was that. The like. Uh, um, um, 40, what are they called? 40s Gram- to 60s. Pattern practice, is that it? Oh. Ooh. Well, I guess that sounds like it would... I'm thinking of audiolingualism or the audiolingual method. Ah, uh, yes. And all that behaviorism going on. Yes. But tell me, what you're saying about the reform period? Yeah, so the reform period has been... Um, has been the, the dates that they've roughly been put on it is between um, 1880 and 1920. Um, mm. And... According to according to the you know again the retrospective view of things, this is when people started to get fed up with um, this 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 traditional classical approach, right? Which was about kind of a lot of repetition, a lot of rote memorization, a lot of focus on language as writing. Um, and there was there was this guy, um, um, and uh, do I have a copy? No. Um, uh, what? Why? Oh, maybe I forgot to I forgot to get it out of the out of the printer. <laughs> oh, but, the okay, so <laughs> it's, it's a guy called uh, Wilhelm Viertord. Okay? okay, and he he wrote a, a, a book in German called. Well, I'm not going to read it in German because it would be a, a disgrace to the German language. But it it was called Language Teaching Must Start Afresh. That's very it's very direct. Yeah, it is. And he kind of, if you look at it, he had some really, you know, kind of fresh ideas and some kind of modern ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, there was some, there was some other work. Like, for example, there's something called um, the multiple line of approach method. Is this the same guy or a different guy? (laughs) Different guy. Different guy. Um, I I like the way this all sounds. Okay. Um, I mean, the multiple line of approach, again, it has these kind of nine, you know, these nine foundational tenets of, of the teaching. But mm-hmm. when you read them, they're so vague that I don't think that they're of any they're practical not, use. They're not applicable. What about Veltod's language teaching must start afresh? Uh, what, what, what were the ideas? He said there were some good ideas in there. Um, yeah. So, so he basically said that, um, you know, he talked about that, that, people needed uh to focus on communication uh he he talked about uh throwing away the idea of um languages writing there was a lot of focus in the pamphlet about teaching phonetics uh there was the seeds of the invention of the ipa the phonetic alphabet oh no way Um, yeah so um you know he it, it really was well I don't know how revolutionary it was at the time. Like, I don't know what the kind of the, the culture was feeling, but mm. but looking back on it, it, it feels really fresh considering it was, it, uh, what, 100, uh, 140 years ago. That sounds like something that might still, like, yeah, might still work with modern SLA or be compatible with, like, modern SLA research and things like that. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That is worth... Re-mentioning. So this is Wilhelm Veltod. Vil- uh, Wilhelm, I don't know how to pronounce. Wilhelm Vietor. V-I-E-T-O-R. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, cool. Yeah. This guy sounds on the mark. Language teaching must start afresh. Great. I was thinking we were just going to talk about Suggestopedia and audiolingualism all day. This is great. There's loads of new stuff to discover. But hopefully we will also talk about audiolingualism and Suggestopedia because they're fun. Um, yes. I yeah, mean, so audiolingualism... That's I mean, the one everyone hated in my, in my little title. Very few people... I, I, I find almost no one has a good thing to say about it. Although I yeah. think it is still being practiced in, um, more in some countries than others uh, for some reason, in, in syllabuses and so on. Mm. But yeah, should we just talk about that very quickly and the, the whole behaviorist aspect of that? And why, why <laughs> do, do you think it was so despised? And I'm just going to quick look at my notes. Um, well, I mean, um, some, some, of, some of the, the <laughs> creation of the audiolingual um, method was inspired by the work of B.F. Skinner, who was mm. a really famous behavioral psychologist. And he, um, he was the one who did the experiments with the superstitious pigeons. I don't know if you've no, heard I about this. this. Okay. <laughs> so basically what he did was he, um, he wanted to prove that um, superstitious beliefs like belief in God or belief in breaking a mirror will you know bring you seven years bad luck. He wanted to prove that um, that they were created from nothing, basically. So okay. what he did was he put pigeons pigeons inside these tiny wooden boxes, and at at regular intervals, so like every sixty seconds, he would drop a piece of food into the box. But the pigeons. Obviously, they had no concept of time, right? So they, they, they thought that it was something they were doing in their behavior that was causing the food to appear. So maybe at the moment when the food appeared, they were turning round or they were pecking their chest or they were flapping their wings. So over time, just based on the coincidence of when the food would arrive, they would start to develop these superstitious behaviors, right? <laughs> so you'd have birds flapping their wings like like they were going insane because they thought it would bring food um or birds just spinning constantly in circles thinking that it would bring them food and that is what what kind of that inspired the audio lingual method isn't <laughs> true behaviorism yeah so was, yeah. was that the beginning of behaviorism uh well i mean i don't think Messi it was the beginning but pigeons. i think he was he was a um you know he was an important figure in that in that uh -huh. movement right um but, you know, that's, and I think it's funny. the idea, I think for me, the scary thing about, about, the, you know, the, the, the audio lingual method is that it's essentially treating humans as animals. Um, well, machines even, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe machines. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's dehumanizing, like yeah. the whole thing about like rewarding positive behavior uh, punishing, neg you know, it's just, uh, it's just, you know, now, now that now in now that we know how important the social aspect is in a modern classroom, the idea of dehumanizing people just seems, well, we just know we just know how wrong it is. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it, a lot of these methods and stuff, at least the ones that were sort of dominant, you know, the ones that follow the main narrative. Um, seem to be some sort of reflection of the time. Or I'm looking at them and I'm projecting the era onto the method. I don't know which way around that's working, but you have this sort of dusty, booky, 19th century, like... Yes. Um, I'm, I'm clearly romanticising, but um, 
And then you have this sort of mass society must organise all of society at once in a completely rigid, regimented way. 40s, 50s, 60s, up until the 60s at least. Um, yeah, like, I exactly. don't know how much that's happening. Yeah, but I no, guess no, that I, would make sense. I think you nailed it. I think that's mm. exactly right. And I think, um, you know, like, for example, if you look at the way that Chomsky's research program, the way that that... Mm-hmm changed the course of the study of linguistics. You know, that was a reflection of the idea that we discovered computers and yeah. so the brain can be like a computer. So, you know, let's let's make that analogy and and yeah, I think And follow it right to the end of the Right road, to the bitter it? end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah so yeah, I think of, uh... I think all of the methods are a reflection of of the times we live in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that's Makes my narrative much easier because um, kickback against the audio lingualism, this behaviorism, this treating people as machines, then you've got. I'm going to let you fill this in because I'm sure you've, you're familiar with the main narrative. Um, and then after audio lingualism, we move into um, what the communicative uh, approach, or we, I am I skipping gonna, too far? I was gonna. I was gonna touch on the humanistic methods first. Okay. Not least because they are tremendous fun. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> despite what's in there, um, yeah, G- give me some examples. All right, okay. So I've got a list of like my my go to four, and I'm gonna I'm gonna like conf- make a confession here that I did mm. actually train in one of these. Okay, um, until I realised that it was eighty five to ninety five percent nonsense. Um, so I've got T- TPR, the, the uh, to- total physical response, mm-hmm. um, 60s, mm-hmm. 70s. Uh, the silent way, again, sort of 60s, 70s mm-hmm. uh, being developed. Most of these got big in the 70s, I think. Um, community, community language learning, where, uh, you know, it's uh, using sort of a lot of Freudian ideas that came out of like um, uh, counseling therapy and stuff. And Suggestopedia, which sort of, came out of nowhere it was, it was just insane um yeah would you like to make any comments on that sort of era or any of those particular methods first yeah i mean um I, again i think i think you know they they all have they, they all have some element of value inside right like for example you know tpr the mm-hmm. idea of involving the body that is um, we could say, you know, embodied language um, is a great idea. You know, I mean, there's been there's been um, lots of research, not specifically about TPR, but there's been research, for example, that shows that, you know, if you give children objects to play with that coincide with either a story you're telling them or what you're talking about, it helps them to to learn the language. So, you know, there's 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 clear. And also, I mean, I have to say that I, I feel like a lot of these things are common sense, right? Mm. Obviously, it's going to be more compelling for a student to literally have an object that you're talking about than it is if I'm just sitting there with a piece of paper and, and telling you about it. I mean, and yeah. I think, and I think again, I, I think maybe um, what we're seeing now is we're seeing the commodification, the beginning of the commodification of uh, language teaching, right? And so w- when you start to sell a product, you need to have something to sell. 
So yeah. it has to be like unique and it has to be uh, different and it has to be something that you can teach teachers so they can go out there and sell it to their students. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, like the, the, the worrying thing is saying that this is the only thing we're going to do. Yeah. And that will give you fluency. This is the one. This is the one thing we're going to do. The magic bullet. We found it. Everyone else is wrong. We got yes. it. Yes. Um, yeah. God, am I going to tell this story? I'm going to tell this story. <laughs> okay, I should, but I'm probably going to do it, and I'm going to leave it in. I bet. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> what happened? I wrote an article for an online teaching magazine. No names in this story, and um, this guy sort of like um, leaves a reply talking about because i think i was writing about error correction mm. and he leaves this reply which is sort of 40 percent gobbledygook like you know pseudoscientific like buzzword stuff <laughs> and i find that really strange because he's, he's just commenting on on a on an online english teachers magazine article um so i kind of respond to him he was telling me how i'm doing a lot of things wrong and then i kind of point to the research and ask him what he means and stuff but he's sort of you know, when you're sort of trying to debate online with a conspiracy theorist, uh-huh. it felt uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, it got a bit, a bit weird. So I checked out his website. And of course, he was one of these guys that has this magic bullet formula thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I look around on the net and I see that he's been, been doing this to other teachers who, you know, who are posting completely normal, very uncontroversial <laughs> things about, I don't know, like class discipline and pair work and just really these kind of really boring topics and going to town on them trying to raise his exposure i thought i thought it was quite funny um and yes this happens a lot because um if yeah if if it's all true obviously then no one else would be doing anything else yeah um it's it's disappointing to to see that um I think the, the main thing is disappointing to see that students um, have unfortunately no skepticism when it comes to uh, choosing the way that they're going to spend their time and their money learning a language. Um, and I, I think something we can do as, as teachers who actually care about student outcomes, something we can do is we can you know, shout as loud as possible and say, listen, um, don't, don't waste your time and your money on stuff that we know doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, don't, don't fall for the hype. You're never going to learn a language in 30 days or five minutes a day or quickly or easily. Mm-hmm. For me, they're all, as soon as I see those words, I know it's total nonsense. <laughs> Absolutely, <know? laughs> yeah. I, I'm just thinking this reminds me a bit of, um, you get all, the, get all these crazy, um, there's actually some of it's become quite famous with coronavirus, but crazy, like, uh, I guess quacks peddling remedies that are actually dangerous to people or at least don't work and um you know it flies in the face of medical science doctors are shouting from the rooftops god's sake don't touch that it will kill you Uh, but i think there's a thing that people really trust anyone who says i'm going to make you feel better Mm -hmm. i'm going to fix this problem for you it's Mm -hmm. just one of those things that that's more compelling than than uh, sort of evidence-based stuff or research-backed stuff yeah, it is. And I, and I think um, that trying to market the reality of language learning is really difficult because what are you going to say? Um, come to mm. class for the rest of your life. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, I think there's a lot of parallels between trying to market language learning and trying to market um, like exercising because mm. 
you know, that's why you have these products, you know, like ab, ab crunching machines. We can get perfect abs in five minutes a day with no diet. Um, <laughs> you know, it's born out of the same, the same need to, you know, disguise the truth, which is that if you want to have an amazing body, well, it's really hard work, actually. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't eat sugar. You have to, you know, run 5Ks a day and go to the gym and, and it's hard Maybe. work. Even yeah. then, it sometimes doesn't work. Yeah, it's true. And it's the, that's what, yeah, I totally agree. Learning a language is, is kind of that much hard work and that much lifestyle adjustment as yeah. well. Although yeah. I will say um, that um, in, in and, and this, this is another example of how, how far sometimes we've fallen, right? So um, mm. uh, in 375 BC, so we're talking about, uh, you know, 2000 years ago, uh, Plato published the the Republic, yeah, which was like a dialogue between you know him and some guy, and and in it he says that exercise, when you're forced to do it, has a positive effect on the body. So even if you don't want to go for a five k run, if I send you on a five k run, you're going to benefit from from it, uh-huh. right? Whether right. you're enjoying it or not, you benefit. Yeah, but he's, and this is but education that is compelled upon students does not have any hold on the mind. And, you know, he's right. Like, um, and that's why I think a lot of these methods fail because, you know, you just can't force people to learn when they're not engaged and they're not enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like the, I guess with that analogy, it's like trying to get someone to run. who's just gone limp. (laughs) and they're not going drag them but yeah they they can't drag them through the mud they're not gonna gain from that yeah Yeah. i mean is is there a student on earth who can really like sit down with one of these pattern practice books and and actually gain from it i mean you have to be special (laughs) (laughs) on the planet in the whole planet yeah no real terms but um uh, yeah but that's in, like this point kind of comes back round to this humanistic stuff because they were very much like the silver bullet uh, brigade. Mm. I, some of them were more flexible than others. And I don't want to give, um, uh, give them a hard time because I think there was a lot to come out of this. You know, this is a kickback against this whole human, um, behavioristic, like treat your students like machines. Um, and, you know, they treat them as like an individual spiritual and personal needs, like even spiritual needs. It was the 70s. Lots of weird stuff happened. But um, I think there was some good stuff in there. Um, yeah. I've got a few notes on particularly, because I, I did a talk on this, like the silent way and Suggestopedia in particular. Mm. Like, no, it wasn't silent. Yeah, it was the silent way. Um, I mean, you said that you trained in one of these methods. Yeah. Can you guess? I don't know if it's easy to guess or not. No, I know. I, I, I guess you can't. I no could have been any of them. Um, silent um, way? It was Suggestopedia. I did some Suggestopedia training like back in like 2007 or something like that. Okay. Um, But yeah, I did some research and I tried to like, because it's quite hard to do research on Suggestopedia because the literature is very, very difficult to get hold of. Um, And I'm in Bulgaria. Like it's it's still difficult to get hold of because it's from Bulgaria. And um, Oh, really? Yeah, it's one of Bulgaria's only sort of uh, like famous exports. That and a weightlifter and a sumo wrestler are like the three big, big ones. (laughs) 
Um, I'm sure nice. I'm forgetting some sportsman or something. He's super famous because I, I don't do sports. But um, and what about there must be some Bulgarian like some sort of famous Bulgarian meat like goulash kind of dish? No. Well, I, I don't eat meat, so there's oh, me disqualified yeah. from that as well. <laughs> um, yeah, but there might well be. Yeah, because the meat here is good. I have eaten it before I gave up meat. But um, yeah, with Suggestopedia, I did have a, a thorough look and, um, and I tried to kind of match up its claims or its, its procedures and its, its theory or whatever mm. to SLA research and things that have basically most SLA, most of the field kind of basically agrees is on the right track, if mm. not definitely beneficial. Um, and there's a lot of things in there. There's learning, learning through doing and discovering is a uh-huh. big part of Suggestopedia. So like very implicit and like was it inductive, excuse me. Um, oh God, or is it deductive? Shame on me. Got to get that right. Yeah. Inductive. I mean, inductive. Figuring it out yourself, right? Yeah. 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 It makes, it sounds good. Tick. Yeah. Tick Nothing for that. Nothing wrong with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, a strong, like very, very, like strong awareness of effective issues in the students, making sure the students are comfortable and their anxiety is as low as possible. Good. Tick, big tick. tick. I have heard some people recently talking about how some stress can be good for students and that it can be a motivating factor. I've seen a few papers on that recently, but this whole and Krashen's um, effective filter thing as well, a lot of people still think Lack of stress is, yeah. Well, I mean, there is, yeah, I know there's some research about there's like the alertness threshold, right? Where um, mm. it's, it's, uh-huh. before, it's before full anxiety, but there's like <laughs> this kind of, because it's like a curve, isn't it? It goes up. It's like, so it starts with zero anxiety, mm. then it goes up to the peak where you're basically having a panic attack. Okay, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere on that curve is when you have just the right balance of like adrenaline and you know, and your your mind is you know is is really alert and like focused. A peak, a peak part. Yeah. Huh, okay, maybe. Uh. Yeah. So that's okay. So I guess an awareness of the effective issues, whether it's too much or too little, is a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know how you would be able to <laughs> keep students in that in that well, state for like 45 yeah. minutes or an hour. <laughs> I have an image of teachers really messing with the students. No, you're not stressed enough. Come on. Oh, you're too stressed. <laughs> have a, have yeah. A <laughs> but I mean, obviously, if, we, if, if you had to choose, you would prefer your students to be yeah. uh, relaxed rather than yeah. stressed. Yeah, for sure. Um, and f- at least for your own sake, but also for theirs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this was an interesting one, I thought, because uh, you got this visible learning stu- study by Hattie quite a while ago now I think mm. still highly highly sort of respected study and it was it was a big one um he discovered I'm just saying this just for the listeners just so mm. just in case no one has read this yet but um yeah like a, a basically a big study on what makes impacts full learning what what affects um uh what creates effective learning and what factors and he kind of tore down like all these different tiny micro elements to to teaching uh, from class sizes to um, like uh, methods to relationships with the teacher and so on, seems that relationship with the teacher is basically the most influential factor factor for this, and yeah. that works with Suggestopedia too because the teacher as an authority figure and a trusted figure is is very important in Suggestopedia. So that matches with Hattie's uh, study. 
Yeah, I mean, um, it, it absolutely um, makes sense. And also, I mean, um, uh, Zoltan... Uh, uh, Donier. Donier, yeah. He's, he's, um, all of his work is about motivation. Mm-hmm. And he created the Ten Commandments of the language classroom. And one or two of those, again, they talk about um, relationships with the teachers. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think there's general agreement that um, you need to have a supportive classroom environment where the students feel safe and yeah. they, can make, they can make all the mistakes they need to make and no one's going to laugh at them. Or if they do laugh, then we're all laughing together rather yeah. than laughing at right, yeah. someone. Yeah. Laughing with, not at, always. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So those are my, my thoughts and, and uh, your thoughts on, on the humanistic methods. Have you got any more ideas about that sort of era? Because it was a kind of crazy time, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm wondering actually when, um, when we started to move towards maybe some of the more publicly known methods like Berlitz. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that was, um, well, <laughs> well, actually, mm. I went to the Berlitz website today and I'm, I just want to, I just want to read you what's on the okay. front page of their website. You tell me what you think, right? All right. Okay. Um, um, with the Berlitz method, all communication during class takes place in the target language. Instructors are native speakers and use a conversational approach based on listening and speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is there anything in there that stands yeah. out to you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so we got like two things that I, I find personally I find questionable: this obsession with uh, the L one only in the classroom. Yeah, and one I find absolutely unacceptable is this necessity for native speakers or so-called native speakers, um, which is still incredibly prevalent, dismayingly uh, today. Um, Those are the two things that jumped out. The third point, fine, conversation. Yeah, questions and answers. That's that's pretty good. You're going to get far with that. You can do that. You can only do that and teach someone to a very good communicative level. But yeah, the other two things I, I, I found. Yeah, bit. I mean, I think, I mean, because look, it says here that the Berlitz method was developed in 1878. I mean, it didn't become popular until much later than that, right? But it's kind of, and I know we're not talking about present day methods yet, but, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that, that, that these methods and this ideology is still happening in classrooms now, mm. it's, it's very upsetting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can't agree more. Um, I mean, that's one school. I mean, it's quite big and they have a lot of uh, branches all over the world. But mm. let's, yeah, let's take that mo- that thought to like reflect a bit on like, what is the landscape like out there for people go- who want to like learn English and what are their options? I mean, is there a lot of that, this sort of native speakerism and this sort of... Um, uh, what was the other main issue? The, you have to only use L1 in yeah. the classroom. And this very sort of rigid, frankly unfair and not very well supported by SLA research. Sorry, I keep saying SLA research, just everyone knows second <laughs> language acquisition, the study of how we how we learn our second languages. Um, but yeah, what do you think? What do you th- well, you, um, you run a school, so you probably have a good insight on this. 
Yeah, I mean, when 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 I was having my my interview with David Crystal ages mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. who was very who was very kind kind enough to say yes to an interview with me because clearly he's a legend, um, yes, and I yes. was I was actually complaining about the state of you know modern language <laughs> teaching, and he said, Christian, what you need to remember is that. English as a global language is actually a really new phenomenon. Like mm. the idea that that we have this one language that you know a, a huge quantity of people in the in the world can speak. That's a mm. new thing, you know. I mean that hasn't really happened in the history of the world ever. I mean there's been empires, mm. but historically they didn't have a language in common, you know. They mm. would be one territory but not one language. You know, this is a new thing. And so I think that the industry is still trying to trying to adapt to to this modern landscape. Um, but but I think one like what I think is is the problem, the main problem now is the fact that um, we have too much standardized testing, um, hmm. and I think a lot of a lot of the issues stem from that. The ideology that we should be uh, teaching people stuff, and then we should be testing them on what they know. And obviously, it's good to test people. Right? We need to know what they know. Governments need to know if their kids are learning. Teachers need to know if they're being successful in the classroom. Parents want to know mm. if they're right. The problem is that language is an incredibly difficult thing to test because how do you judge success at language learning really? Yeah. Um, like, would you prefer to have a conversation with somebody who forms perfectly grammatically correct sentences, but can only uh, produce them extremely slowly and can only talk about a very small amount of things, right? Would you prefer to talk to that person or would you prefer to talk to somebody who, you know, who produces this continuous stream of language makes lots of mistakes but is kind of fun and exciting. Yeah. You know, and then and we have everything in between. Yeah. Um which what which who's successful? Yeah. You know, um it's it's a really difficult question and and of course what it means is if 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 you're if you're in charge of creating an exam which measures language ability, you have to be able to say that things are right and wrong. And Really, in language, there's very few things that are right or wrong. So in order to comply with the end objective, which is testing, we have to change everything we do in the classroom to basically teach students right and wrong stuff, which, as Scott Thornbury calls it, you know, McNuggets. McNuggets, yeah. And um, that's how we got into this god-awful mess. So (laughs) the the sooner we... we, um, burn the exams the better off we'll all be really (laughs) okay so people can uh, if they need to know how how successful a language learner is they just need to go and speak to them and find out for themselves basically right exactly exactly (laughs) and cool i mean um it's so complicated to to judge success i mean of course because at the end of the day you know language is a very human thing and and we, we, you know, we can't we can't um, pretend that language prejudice isn't a thing. You know, yeah. it's why on the BBC when they put people with regional accents, 
like a Yorkshire accent or a Newcastle accent, people don't like it. You know? Well, it depends what they what they're doing on the BBC. <laughs> it, they're happy with like them being in certain roles, and it's like call centers. Have you called a call center in the UK recently in the last? You know, I haven't because of where I where I live. Mm, but mm. Um, I can't imagine what it's like there now. Well, they they I think they, the market research has presumably decided that um, people from like up in northwest Yorkshire and and further up like Newcastle and so on. Um, are trusted more uh, so they should be answering the phones for certain types of companies wow and yeah it's, it's, whenever I call my bank I, it's great I, I, I'm talking to a, a Geordie it's great <laughs> I like it but um, it's, do it's they call odd. you pet sometimes they do and then I get very happy um, <laughs> but yeah yeah it's 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 interesting but that's a whole other area which is a black hole and we could get sucked into. Yeah. I, I'm aware that we've done an hour. Mm. Um, I've got time if you have, but if not, we could wrap it up there. Up to you. No, no, I, I have um, no nothing to do. So Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If you're happy to uh, see this to the bitter end, like Chomsky. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Sorry, it's a harsh analogy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, let's do it. Okay, because we got, we got to the interesting bit in a way because uh, we... Um, are approaching, according to my narrative at least, the post-method era and Mm -hmm. basically where we are now. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got a little note on the natural approach because it seems to be one of the first approaches that's actually taking um, academic research and applying it to a method. Perhaps there are others uh, that Mm -hmm. I've missed. But in the late 70s, we've got uh, basically, it seems to be essentially based on Krashen's um, work. But a, mm. an approach that that uses his stuff. But of yeah. course, around that time, commun- uh, communicative language teaching really took yeah. off. Basically, yeah. in the eighties. Yeah, let's talk about that. This, this is the big <laughs> one. It's still there. It's dominating our entire field. Maybe for a good reason. It's flexible. It's sensible. Um, it's based on research a lot of the time. Sometimes it's not. Um, yeah. But it's, it seems to be the one that's killed off absolutely everything else. Um, yeah. There's been no bold methods uh, really since then, with a, a couple of um, notable exceptions. Mm. What, what do you? So yeah, that's my my overview of it. What do, what do you feel when you hear CLT? Yeah, no, I, I think you're, I think you're right, um, and I think. Well, I think maybe there's a difference between. Um, what we would like to see happening and what is actually happening in, in, in classrooms. I mean, you know, I've seen in the last maybe five years, a real focus on task-based language teaching. And when I first saw it, I thought, um, you know, what is it? Like, what, what is this? I mean, it's part of this, it's underneath the, the communicative umbrella, right? Doing tasks. And, you know, started reading about it, and and I and then I, I kind of immediately realized, well, basically it's just role playing activities, um, and but people who are into task based language teaching find that comparison highly offensive. You know, it's not role play, <laughs> god damn it, it's task based language teaching, but but really it's just role play. Um, right, it's and, scaffolded role play. To be fair, it's structured role play. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm not a great. I'm not a big defender of it. I, I like it. I know it's there. Um, yeah, sure. It's like yeah. it's really like good quality role play, shall we say? 
right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I mean, I just, I kind of feel like um, I would prefer to call this, rather than calling it the post-methodology um, era, mm-hmm. why don't we call it the common sense era? Mm, I like <laughs> in that. In terms of, you know, in terms of, um, it, it's plainly obvious that if we want to produce students who can leave the classroom um, and be able to have conversations, that they should be practicing conversations in class, right? And perhaps the sort of conversations they're going to have, not ones where it's they're playing somebody else, perhaps. Exactly, this, exactly. This could be, I think, a fair criticism of CLT in general, because as it developed, especially at the beginning... Um, I think Swain, I'm trying to find my Swain quote because um, Michael Swain, you know, one of the yeah. legends of, 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 of our, our field. Oh, I'm just going to, sorry, give me a sec. I'm just control yeah. effing. Here we go. Yeah. So um, this whole thing about this sort of artificial environment, you have this basis that you're going to get students to communicate um, through meaning, which is great, and negotiate meaning, which is great, um, which seems to be how we learn quite effectively very important stuff but then you know you end up with these very sort of convoluted exercises with this information gap stuff going on and how many times have you been in a foreign city and you've got half a map and you need to talk to someone with the other half a map but they're not going to show it to you (laughs) so (laughs) you have to like negotiate meaning that that's just not a realistic i think and michael swain what he came up with this um this one one line that summed, summed up CLT to him. You are George. Ask Mary what she does at Radio Rhubarb. And it's just like, yeah, it, it got so convoluted. It got so ridiculous. So this is a fair criticism of CLT, I think. But Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and that's, that's kind of, yeah, the sad thing is that you can have... Um, teachers doing really great kind of activities that are interactive and involve, you know, speaking. But but what's missing maybe is the actual utility. Like what's missing is the question of, am I teaching them something that's actually useful? Um, and that's, that's a big point. That's an important question. I think it comes back again to, to Scott Thornbury's Grammar McNuggets thing, because all of these mm. things, they, they're very sort of, they're task-based, they're purpose-built and purpose-oriented um, exercises, but they're not, that's not how you actually negotiate meaning in the real world. Um, yeah. It's and... giving you, yeah, yeah, pieces of language for it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And like, fine, you can do tasks, but if we still choose to assess students at the end of the, at the, end of the course... If we still to choose to assess them in in certain ways, the whatever we do in class will always be um, driven by the need for testing at the end. Mm. So, you know, it's 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 polluted. You know, whatever whatever, and obviously, I'm talking about in general. I'm talking about um, you know compulsory education. Yeah, um, it's the vast know. majority of people learning English are in that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just, I just wish, I just wish that um, that maybe uh, teachers and students were given more freedom by by administrators. Um, okay. To see what to see what just came up in the classroom from the everyday needs of the people, you know. Mm-hmm. 
This is cool. I'm going to come back to this at the end because I think this is going to become one of the takeaways uh, of, of, of the talk, <laughs> of the interview. But um, very quickly, because we've talked about uh, Scott, we brought him up three times, so yeah. we can't not Scott, talk what about a legend. Dogmare. What a yeah, legend. yeah, absolutely. Um, we can't not talk about Dogmare. And um, let's do that. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to let you lead on this one because... I got yeah. to say. Um, I mean, I, I think um, I haven't, I haven't, I don't have a copy of, of the, um, of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, teaching, teaching Unplugged. Yes, exactly. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have a copy of that, but you know, you, if, w- when I read the dogma, you know, the, the principles of dogma, I mean, they're all a big yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, but, but again, like it's, it's a difficult thing to, it's a difficult thing to say, well, I'm going to do that in the classroom because it is, it's a vague thing. It's more like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It has a, it's, it's more like the, the kind of the seven, what is it? The seven uh, truths of Buddhism. You know, it's more of a, what can we say? It's more of a, um, <laughs> it's more of a mentality than an actual something that you can actually, you know, apply in a rigid way, but maybe that's yeah. good. But I mean, yeah, I think he they because it's, it's Scott and Luke Meddings as well wrote yes. the whole thing. But yeah, they yes. try to sort of balance that out a bit. I think because the second half of the book is lots of actual activities you can do in the classroom. So yeah, it, the first half is super sort of abstract, isn't it? Um, yeah. And you find yourself sort of sitting down and agreeing with it, but then not really remembering what it was all about once you finish reading it. But then you've got those exercises that can kind of bring you back to the classroom, back to earth. Yeah, I mean, but then, like, what happens when the exercises run out, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and again, look, um, I don't have a copy of the book. Maybe the first half uh, is very instructive about, you know, about how to, how to take, you know, how take this philosophy and turn it into an entire curriculum. Um, I don't know. Um, it feels a lot to me sometimes uh, like a bit of an unfinished project. Mm. I mean, it's not fair to say you should finish a methodology because then you end up like those humanistic guys in the seventies, um, or that guy who was trolling me online. But um, <laughs> yeah, but like you, you know what I mean. It feels it needs a lot more of development to go. That's a very boring way of putting it. But. No, I mean, I th- I think it's I think that it's a problem without a solution because. Mm. Um, because really, and, 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 and Scott himself, he said this to me, you know, it's very difficult to generalize across the world of language teaching, you know, because there are some, there's going to be kids in, 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 in the United States in a, in a, in a small classroom with all of the resources you could imagine, electronic whiteboard and access to the internet. And, and then, you know, on the other hand, you're going to, you could have, a hundred kids in a mud hut somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, with no resources. So it's, it's such a difficult um, problem to solve. But I think that we can definitely say that there are certain things that we should always be doing, like the foundations of helping someone to, to learn a language. And, and really, so much of them are just a common sense, you know? Yeah. I wanted to come back to this common sense. Um, yeah, no, I don't think I got any... I, the only thing I was going to say about dogma is that it's quite difficult to do in very large classes and it's very easy to apply 
um, when you're doing like one-to-one and things like that. So I think, but you mentioned that already and I guess yeah. it sounds like Scott did too. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there was, um, okay, so I was on the internet one day and I saw a, a headline on BBC News and it said, this school in England, I can't remember where it was, the school in England has got 90 students in one class. And I was like, oh my God, what, what the, how is this possible? Mm. And so I, I watched the video and and I think that if I was faced with the situation of teaching an enormous class, I, this is exactly what I would do. So basically they divide the day up into one hour sessions. And for the first 15 minutes, you have a teacher at, at like a podium and he speaks to all of the kids at once with a, with a, with a whiteboard. But you could use a blackboard or an electronic you know, projector, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he will do the explicit instruction. Like today we're going to do, you know, we're going to learn how to do whatever, this. And then after the 15 minutes, they split the kids up into tiny groups of eight. And they have, uh, they have these 10, like, they, they don't even have to be teachers. They're just um, basically supervisors. And their job is to just make sure the kids do the, do the activity based on the presentation. So... I think that's an awesome solution to the big class problem because you have direct instruction and then you have opportunities for the the students to actually break out, you know, break out and and do something. That's um, cool. And it, yeah. is and like what they have to do is is quite loose. It's just somehow based on what happened at the beginning so they can be creative with that. They can be creative and mm-hmm. and obviously as a teacher you could well, I mean I suppose you could um give them an activity which is you know much more strict or Mm -hmm. you could yeah like um convince me that uh lemonade is more delicious than Mm -hmm. coca-cola that's a great that's a great one let them chew on that for 45 minutes nice oh pretty easy (laughs) (laughs) i love lemonade um but yeah no that that's, that's good that's a really sensible way of dealing with it and maybe that's what teachers need now like not more methodologies methods created by one guy in his study but like simple practical like every everyday lesson like procedures that are just going to make their lives easier and make essentially uh, more effective learning can take place with it yes yeah definitely i mean um i when you know (laughs) this i tell people often that when it comes to teaching children, and I mean all the way up until, let's say, 15 years old, right? A majority of your time and effort is just in actually getting them to pay attention and getting them to, um, to, to you know, really focus on what you're doing. It's uh, uh, most of the work is, is classroom management stuff. Um, and, you know, all of the technicalities really are a very distant second. You know, you put, you put an inexperienced teacher, like a recent graduate teacher in, 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 a, in, a, in a room with 20 primary school children, <laughs> their, their biggest problem is not knowing whether, you know, is not knowing all of the details of English grammar. <laughs> you know, their biggest problem is figuring out how am I going to get these 20 kids to sit down and, and just listen to me. You know, that's for, uh, for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I think um, a lot of help could come maybe not from the specifics of any methodology, more like, what do I do every day? You know? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, 
I'm glad we got to this stage of the the talk or the the conversation <laughs> without mentioning it. But I mean, there is Richards and Rogers. Um, you know the the writers, the go to writers of method and methodology, uh, who 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 basically sort of the main guys who've got this sort of strong narrative going on that we very very loosely follow today, um, and they distinguish between like procedure, approach, and method. Method, um, and like I'm sure you know this. I'm just sort of saying this, yeah, yeah, just to recap and to to give food for thought. But um, yeah, so you have got method, which is this silver bullet, one size fit fits all thing. Um, that is not very flexible and has about got all its sort of um, ideas together that are, are sort of strong enough to basically not be questioned. I'm, I'm not describing this very <laughs> academically. And um, uh, approaches which are more like, let's say something like a, a dogma would be an approach because it's like, you use the word philosophy. I think it's quite a good analogy for an approach. Um, yeah. And then you've got procedure, which is, this class of 90 kids and how, how you actually just sort of do that on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, I've skimmed over a lot of details on that, but do you think those sort of fit into whether the terms are appropriate or not, but whether those three main ideas sort of can inform teachers and how they, they teach? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, if you go into a really good primary school classroom, um, the teachers, they have, a lot of it's about routine. So the kids know when they come in, there's a certain thing they have to do at a certain time. Um, because, you know, even though um, we might not like to admit it, you know, we like routine, really. It makes us feel safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, being able to, you know, especially if you're a, a, like a full-time teacher in an institutional setting, being able to divide up your own day into into chunks you know where you can um where the the students understand that the certain thing happens at a certain time and it it just it it means that um the students know when when they have to pay attention when they have a moment to just mess around um when is their kind of creative free time and i think that that becomes liberating Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think those, I mean, I'm trying to answer your question, I suppose, by saying mm-hmm. that um, we need all of those things. And depending on who your students are and where you're teaching, um, the, the most important thing could be like the, the actual um, logistics of how do you get the kids into class? How do you get them to sit? How do you divide them up? That That can actually be something which then liberates you to do the actual teaching work. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've never worked in, in an institutional you know, setting. Um, I know a lot of teachers who do, and I just admire the work that they do every day because it, yeah. it's, re- it's a really tough job. Yeah, I, I find it unenviable and very, very commendable. It's tough, yeah, yeah. 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 I, yeah. I tend to mostly meet these people when I just go to a conference, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Um, yeah, cool. So wrap up about three little things, small things. Um, is there is there any sort of thing I've missed from this sort of... I mean, we skipped over a few things, but is there any, any weird or interesting or just noteworthy um, methodology, method, whatever, that you'd <laughs> like to bring up? <laughs> um, well, I think, um, I think ironically, 
ironically, maybe the the method that that well, let's not say method. Let's say approach because it fits okay. more. It's more like a philosophy or a mentality. Mm-hmm. I think some of the the approaches that we need now, mm-hmm. we need to go back beyond beyond these methods before there were methods. You know, we need to mm-hmm. go back pre methods and just look at the way that, for example, the ancient Greeks used to consider the role of education that you know it was about play um it was about curiosity it was about discovery and you know we we need a lot more of that view of education you know now instead of the view of education as as a means to an end fantastic yeah i i that sounds absolutely awesome um, because people talk a lot about post method and yeah. pre method, yeah, there are probably many more gems to find there. And post method is always going to be informed by method and by by this sort of reg- restrictive, I suppose, regimented sort of um, thing that we've done to ourselves. I guess it's a sort of Victorian <laughs> influence, industrial revolution sort of influence thing that we still see the dregs of. And that brings me to the testing thing. You you bring it up a lot. And I understand why. Um, yeah. And I guess I'm just, I just had a thought while we were talking and, and this kept coming up that mm. perhaps um, as a teacher or as a learner, you might, and please tell me if you think this is a good idea, because I only just sort of came up with it in the last few minutes. You, you should sort of divide your teaching or your learning into stuff that you need for the test and stuff that's actual learning because very like it might be too detrimental to kind of put them in the same basket because you might mistake one for the other and that could be bad what, what do you think about that that was so just yeah yeah mm. i mean um uh a lot of students uh who are not in in the educational system they they do exams as a kind of form of motivation like they mm-hmm. feel like, well, if I'm going to go, for example, I'm going to go do IELTS and I'm going to pay 300 euros to do the exam, then I'm going to, you know, it's going to force me to go to class and I'm going to really study hard. And But to me, fine, you know, you might be compelled to go to class and you might, you know, buy the IELTS book. And But again, you're, you're trapped in this cycle mm-hmm. of learning stuff that's just not important to you, that's not relevant to you. Um, and... If if you can avoid exams at all, I think it's just better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Measure measure your success by the success of your communications. Um, can you do it? Can you do the things that you want to do? Make a list of the things you want to do. Can you do them? If you can't do them, well, you know, work towards uh, you know being able to do them. Um, and I mean, it's more difficult, obviously, if you're if you're a teacher. A lot of teachers, you know, 45, well, you know, right? 45 minutes goes by very quickly. Yeah. Um, and the idea that you can somehow maybe divide a 45-minute session into let's do, let's do uh, stuff that's actually relevant outside the classroom and then mm. let's quickly squeeze in some exam stuff. I mean, yeah. I just, it's, isn't, it, isn't it so sad that that's the kind of choice? <laughs> right yeah yeah it's not fair is it it's actually literally unfair but yeah yeah, 
Um, you're right, yeah, because it's hard enough to get everything in in the first place. So, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> we, we're not going to end on a despairing note. Um, you did no, remind me of, uh, oh, who wrote Huckleberry Finn? I, I, I know this. Um, Tom, uh, um, <laughs> he wrote Tom Sawyer too. How, how, oh my God, like, shame on, it's, it's, <laughs> shame I, on us. We normally know this. I'm sure we both normally know this. Uh, Tom Sawyer. Who wrote Tom Sawyer? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Mark Twain. Of course. Oh my God. <laughs> it's only because I asked you that you couldn't remember. I'm sure that's it. Oh, the pressure um, was. <laughs> pressure. I had no excuse. But yeah, Mark Twain. One of his. He's got loads of great quotes. But uh, one of them was, I, "I never let my schooling get in the way of my education." <laughs> so. Oh yeah. Maybe that yeah. should be the moral of this of this conversation or, or what you've been getting at a lot. Things keep coming back to that. And with pre-method and avoidance of exam-based mentality and discovery through curiosity and love of learning. And I guess this uh, ancient Greek thing was also like there were post-disciplinary stuff going on all the time. Things weren't regimented into their disciplines. Yeah, um... I mean, maybe maybe um, what we need is uh, is is more of a to ask the big question of like why are we doing this, like why are we doing this to our children? Um, because like is I think the goal of the education system uh, should be to turn out students who have just skills that are useful. Um, and and normally, you know, useful skills then they're not about technicalities. Like, like for example, um, you know, if if I if I ask you to, um, to 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 calculate how many uh, rubber balls I can fit into my trailer, mm-hmm. well, it's a problem that requires mathematics, right? But mm-hmm. be, be, before I can sit down and do the maths, I need to understand, you know why I'm choosing the maths that I need to do because, you know, I, I need to understand how to calculate volume. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's, it's more, you know, students and teachers, but especially administrators and governments mm-hmm. need to ask themselves, you know, what, what kind of people do we want in society? You know, do we want um, people who have pieces of paper but not any useful skills? It doesn't seem like a, a very good thing to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Should we make that the takeaway? <laughs> <laughs> we it's could. It's not a bad one. It's not a bad one. <laughs> I'm happy with that. I've heard worse. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's a good one. It's a good one. We got a, we got a, a message out there that, um, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, I, I, can, yeah. tell you, I can tell you a little, a little story about that. Um, okay. So... One day there was um, this new, he was a new uh, lieutenant. No, I don't know. What's a high rank in the army? I can't even remember. Like a, oh, I know this. A general. Like had a, uh, a general, yeah. Yeah, okay. So there's a new general. He arrives on the army base and because um, he's replacing the old general. And he decides he's going to do a walking tour of the base to, you know, see how it is and look at the state of things. So he's walking around the base and he comes across two soldiers guarding a wooden bench. Mm. And 
That's a bit weird. You know, they're in, they're standing there, automatic weapons, full, you know, full tactical gear. And he says, soldiers, why are you guarding this bench? And they say, we don't know, sir. We just follow orders. So he goes back and he asks the, 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 the general who he's replacing. He asks mm-hmm. the previous general. He says, why are there two soldiers guarding a bench on the, on the base? And he says, I don't know. They were doing that when I got there. <laughs> so he, he calls the previous general. Mm-hmm. And same story. I don't know. They were guarding the bench when I got there. And eventually, after 10 phone calls, he finds the very first general of the base and he speaks to him on the phone and he says, General, why, why the hell are there these two soldiers with guns guarding this wooden bench? And he says, What? The paint is still wet? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love the story because mm-hmm. what it means is that you know, it just shows that we do so many things in life from based on tradition and we do them without questioning and really they're just pointless. Yeah. <laughs> and we could we could all do with, with asking why. Testing is an example of the paint the paint is still wet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, all all the sort of constrictive elements of methodologies over the past two hundred years, the paint is still wet. Exactly. The title of this podcast episode is now <laughs> The Paint is Still Wet. <laughs> awesome. That makes me Excellent. happy. That's, that's a great way to finish. Before, yeah, before we finish up, have you got any questions at all about anything? Uh, no. Um, on on no. or off record? No, no. I'm, uh, I'm, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. That was uh, great. Yeah, me yeah. too. That was much more fruitful than I was expecting. And I was expecting quite a lot of you <laughs> and <laughs> over-delivered. Ah, I, yeah. I was um, no, I um, I don't know. You know, uh, some some sometimes you speak to people and it's just it just feels really natural and and it feels like a, a real conversation. Yeah. Um, and other times it's just you know people just firing questions at you and mm. Um, mm. so I'm I I really I I can't believe that it's been ninety minutes. I, I, yeah, I, me too. I had a great time. I had <laughs> a great too, time. Mate. Yeah, yeah. I I really enjoyed it too. The script went to hell, and that's good. That's always a good thing. Uh, awesome. Okay, that was it. Um, I have no comments. I made all the comments I wanted to make during the interview. Um, but if you have any comments or any ideas, or you want to talk more about uh, methods, methodology, pre-method, post-method, and all the things we talked about today get involved in the conversation um send me an email uh, gabriel at clarkandmiller.com um yeah we can talk about all this stuff and i'm still thinking about opening a facebook group i'm not sure if the time is right yet i haven't got much uh response on that so i'm going to just wait until i do <laughs> and then and then that's when the, we'll be ready for a Facebook group. And then we can all talk about this stuff all together. Big dynamic conversations, methods, native speakerism, all the, all the issues that really like matter in our industry at the moment. Anyway, yeah, that's it. Um, go to ClarkMiller.com. Loads of more stuff there for you. Uh, drop me a line, Gabriel at ClarkMiller.com. And um, before, during or after all of that, just enjoy the rest of your day. So thanks a lot. I will see you next time.